Amanda serves as the coordinator of musical theater, of theater and performance at Kennesaw State University, where she teaches courses in musical theater performance, acting, voice, and musical theater history and literature. In addition to being an incredible teacher, she's a director, a music director, and performer. She's also a dear friend who has incredible insight and a powerful point of view. We are very excited to welcome to the podcast, Amanda Wansa Morgan. Yay! Yay! Hi! So far, I think that this is the best interview we've done. I mean, we're like, we're nailing it. You're the first interview we've done. But, um, so um, Amanda, we're going to start with the question that we start with, with everybody. Kikau, do you want to, do you want to read it? Do you want to do it? Sure, I'll do it. I'll start. Uh, Tell us why musical theater? What draws you to, to what we do? Oh, man. Okay, well, uh, when I was six years old, I was raised by a single mother. Um, and I, and everybody knows this about me because it's so relevant to who I am as a teacher and what I do. My mom passed away when I was 10, but before that, it was just two of us. When I was like six years old, um, and there was something about the witch's rap that really drew me in. There was such like powerful... Um, there was such lady power behind it. Thank you, Bernadette. And so that's what kind of looped me in. And I actually started doing musical theater as a kid in San Diego. I went to a performing arts elementary school. I just went all in. Um, another fun fact is I didn't meet my dad until my 20s. And when I did, I discovered a whole part of a family that was all artistic. And my mom's side of the family is not artistic. So, like, I think it's genetic, right? Like, my dad has big blue eyes and his sister made a Shakespeare professor and his other sister was a concert pianist and my grandma was in a big band. And I think part of it's genetic. But to answer your question, why am I still in it? I think because of that, there's something about musical theater that, I mean, it is, I teach that it is storytelling heightened, right? Like in musical theater, we sing because we must, because speaking is not enough. And I think I'm just full of a lot of energy and emotions and as you said, um, opinions, I, I just, uh, there's something about me that like from an existential point of view, just believes that life is really special and that I really want to soak everything up in it and I don't do anything. Uh, can I cuss on here? Half-ass? Yeah. <laughs> can I cuss on here? Silence. Yeah. <laughs> like hold music. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Please put like a duck squawk or something if I if I drop an f bomb and you don't want it in there, um, or like a horn. But anyway, no, no, go go for it because it's you're right. It's a podcast. We'll we'll, it's a put, podcast. we'll put a Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I don't do anything half ass, and I think there's something about musical theater to me that helps us express all of the emotions that are inside of us and people like me, right? And so that's why I've always gravitated towards musical theater people. Um, I also just how music, uh, I talk about this when I teach script and score analysis, I just get super nerdy jazzed when what's happening musically is telling the story as much as the words, right? So like dissonance in music, lining up with dissonance in relationships or dissonance in a character's emotion. There's something really special about it. And yeah, visual spectacle is a part of it for me too, like the goosebumps we get when we see those those lights go flying in Hades Town, or you know the hairspray can open and here's Edna that made a costume change even though there were two numbers to do it what have you whatever yeah so yeah I guess that's like kind of the answer as to how I started and why I'm still here <laughs> so then the big follow up question to that is why do you teach 
Mm, that's a great question, Maddie. I, I actually started, I don't know, when I was in high school, middle school, I like was always helping other people figure stuff out, right? Like I was always tutoring or connecting the dots and then by helping others, then I connected the dots and that was super satisfying. I do believe teaching is a spiritual calling. Like I believe I'm a, I'm a self-identify as a Christian. Um, I believe God gives us all gifts. And from an early age, even in college, I started teaching voice lessons to kids in college, Um, like uh, younger kids. Like when I did a production of Annie and the parents were like, do you teach voice lessons? And I was like, I guess I do now. So, um, connecting the dots and um, being able to see a person in front of me who's asking a question and go, okay, well, let's, let's experiment with how to find that answer. Not knowing the answer, but going, I, I think I have some tools to help us, help us find that answer. Um, and more explicitly, so I, I went to grad school right after undergrad for a series of Fortunate and unfortunate events. Um, I went straight through, and when I was in grad school, and I went for the purpose to get more training and more credits, I really, truly fell in love with teaching, and I found myself in an internship where um, all of us were being asked to perform, and and all of us were being asked to teach a little bit, but then depending on people's assignments, some people were asked to teach more versus do more office work, etc. And all I will say is, on the days where I taught or served as a voice coach or a music director, I felt more fulfilled than on the days where I had eight hours of rehearsal for a show I was cast in. And there was something in me that, that switched for me as just in grad school and then that internship where I thought um, I, I felt on the days that I came home as an actor, I felt A, very selfish, um, like, oh, I was depending on the opinions of others to, to fulfill me. I felt selfish where I, all I was worrying about was my weight and my vocal health. And did I, and this was a Shakespeare internship, right? So did I breathe at the semicolon or not? I can't remember. Was that okay, right? I was dependent upon other people's opinions. But the days that I came home from working on a show, like they actually had me compose a musical that year in my internship, I, I was like jazzed. I was like, oh man, I made a thing or I helped this person figure out a thing. Um, and that felt, that felt like a calling. It felt like a skill that that God or the universe had bestowed upon me that I was like, and I don't mean to be all like saintly about it. It, it was just like, oh, that today was a good day. I feel I feel fulfilled versus I'm never gonna be good enough, you know. So that I was just kind of taking those cues, I guess. That's so I a, I, that's amazing. I've just never heard like just it put that way, but I completely agree that spiritual. There's just, there is something that feels sort of higher power about it, about what we do. So that's Well, in teaching, amazing. right? Like you can have a ton of skills. We have a lot of people, especially with the pandemic and the pivots happening of, of pivoting into teaching, you can have all the skills in the world, but being able to, I mean, I just taught a lesson right before this, being able to have someone in front of you who's facing a problem and being able to identify the challenge and, and go into your own little, like, I always think of the opening sequence to Little Man Tate. Remember that movie? Um, how he's, like, seeing... Oh, it's a great movie. If you haven't ever seen Little Man Tate, it's so great. Jodie Foster. It's early 90s. Um, how he solves a math equation. And it's, like, everything, like, kind of, like, time stops. And you kind of go into your encyclopedia of knowledge in your brain. And you go, what exercise is going to help this person hit this B flat? What is it? Right? Um... Yeah, and so it's really exciting, and 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 I, I'll probably go to another question. It'll probably be answered another question. But my background is a 
partial athlete and someone who has done a bunch of different things, um, it's super invigorating to be able to go, how am I going to communicate this to you with a language that I feel like is going to work for you, my student? I love that. Um, uh, our next question is, what is your goal or responsibility as an educator? You know, this has changed through the years. Uh, even before the, the reckoning, the very important reckoning of 2020, I was, I kind of turned this corner a few years back because I work in, in, in programs that serve students that aren't necessarily coming from like your average magnet school, right? I don't teach in a BFA. So I used to think it was prepare the students for the industry. That's my ethical responsibility. But I actually really believe it's use all of the tools in my power, ranging from the privilege I've had to be like to, to grow up in a home, all this education, um, to have the free time to, to research, right? There's, there's like the, the genetic gifts and then there's also the, re, there's the resources and all that stuff. It's my responsibility to give students to be a resource, right? And to also create space that is safe for them to learn how to learn and to learn, right? It's to learn certain skills that they can use wherever they're going to end up. So that could be, you know, again, that could be like, mechanical as a voice teacher, how we're hitting B flats or C's. It could be emotional, how we, how we deal with rejection. It could be, um, I just had a student here earlier for about three hours. He's working on arranging a cabaret and also writing a new musical and like just kind of talking through like, look, you know, you can do the orchestrations, but here's like how I approach, you know, dealing with or uh, divvying out the orchestral parts for the band in order to take the stress off of yourself, right? So it's it's creating a safe space for students to learn, and then it's also being like a little encyclopedia to help them find the skills that are going to help them, you know, succeed in whatever they want to succeed in. And if that's not in theater, that's okay, because I teach in a BA, and I also believe that, like, if that makes you, ends up making you, like, a bomb-ass Amazon manager in a couple years so that you can hit six figures and take care of your family. Like, that's great. That's good for you. Then I helped. That's great. Truly. So the next question is, is my favorite. Um, it's it, what is one thing that you do as a musical theater educator that you don't think anybody else does? What's your secret? Keep things in perspective. Um, also, like, from nuts and bolts, like, I have, like, a full music degree and a full theater degree. I have an MFA in acting and a degree in music from the Florida State University. Like, I fully read music, and I fully, I have a big, fat MFA in acting. You know what I mean? Like, so I do both. And so I kind of joke around, but I teach people to act and sing and do it at the same time. Right? So I would love to say that I'm half music, you know, half voice teacher, half acting teacher, but I like to think of myself as a full voice teacher and a full acting teacher. With that being said, like I said, I, I grew up playing sports, played softball for eight years and basketball for eight years. And so I really can truly, and I know I hear a lot of teachers say this, I've been on all those committees. I really truly can meet literally anyone where they are. I can work with a singer who is terrified of a person who doesn't self-identify as a singer of holding pitch 
right? And when I do my initial like intake survey of, of people that I'm working with, I ask them all sorts of questions. They're like, why are you asking me? I ask them like, of, you know, in your household, did you grow up with siblings? Were you the youngest? Were you the oldest? Were you the middle? Would you characterize your house as a loud house or a quiet house? You know what I mean? Because like understanding where humans are coming from, right? Like were you told to, I was told to shut up a lot as a young person because I'm loud, right? Um, That's important to know when we're in the middle of coaching a song and and we're trying to work something and it's like, hold on, where is this, where is this coming from, right? Um, sports analogies. I always ask everybody, you know, what sports did you play growing up? Did you play competitive ball versus rec ball versus varsity, JV? You know, what kind of injuries do you have? What do you like to do in your hobbies and your spare time? Do you like to garden, right? Because I will pull from every analogy I can. Do you like to cook? All right, great. I'm going to use cooking analogies with this person. Um, so I, I really try to teach, like, the whole human in front of me in a way that's a little outside the box because I myself am outside of a lot of boxes. So, and also I would say what you see is absolutely what you get. The person on this podcast is the person that goes, that, that my husband sees every night. You know what I mean? Like I'm the same Amanda that my family hangs out with on Christmas. I'm the same Amanda in, in a meeting with the provost. Like I don't, I don't, uh, I, obviously, I you know tailor my language to what is appropriate for the moment, and, and often I will shut up in order to like, discern who that is. But when my students, you know, either end up coming to my house as alumni or something like that, they're like, "Yeah, you're like the same person that you were in my freshman intro class." I'm like, "Yeah, because I got nothing to pull, I got nothing to prove, I have nothing to hide." So. That leads to so many questions, Kika, if I could do a couple follow-ups, because, you know, one of the things uh, I was wanting to say in your intro, but I didn't, was that, you know, so many uh, jack-of-all-trades are really masters of none, but you are actually somebody (laughs) who does all of these things and does them really well. And uh, so I was going to say that in the intro, uh, but then I... For sake of time, I, I kind of cut it out. Um, I just don't understand because you have so much energy and you get so much done. And I'm so interested to know how you're able to do everything that you do and do it so well. Because I find that when I, I have a tendency to overextend myself, but then I am not as good at the things that I'm doing because I'm trying to do too much at once. And and. I, in my experience with you, you're not like that. So what's your secret? What is that? How, do you, how are you able to do that? Mm-hmm. I do drop some balls sometime. And when that happens, like there are people that might listen to this or out there that have big, long emails from me being like, I'm so sorry. I mean, I was just on the phone the other day with a producer of mine. I called him frustrated because I didn't have the tools I needed to do something and I was in a hurry and I called him and I was kind of rude. And then I had to email him. I'm like, I'm sorry, I was a butthead on the phone to you. Like that was me dropping a ball. I was frustrated and, and overextended, right? Um, when it comes to the skills-based stuff, here's, here's actually the secret. I used to try to do everything in a day. And I learned how to manage my time based on my needs, right? I take, I've taken all the personality tests. Enneagram 3. I'm an Aries. I'm a Slytherin. I'm an e, uh, ENFTJ, whatever, right? I got stuff. My love language is acts of service. Like, if I know that stuff then I know, like my husband knows, that relaxing for me is like a really interesting 
balance of like having a day full of nothing and then a day full of like home-based tasks that will give me my hit of dopamine from achievement and yet I will not have opened the computer like so I've gotten to know myself I've gotten into a lot of therapy um and I've gotten to know that for me like when I, I figured this out in grad school when I was writing my thesis some of my colleagues could write some of my classmates could write their theses thesi is that a pillow I don't know they could write their thesis in the dressing room you know I can't do that I have to have like a three to four hour block if I'm arranging something or like if I'm working on, you know, MTEA's bylaws, like instead of being like, oh, if I have a deadline of this Friday for this thing, I'm going to work on it a little bit on Tuesday and Thursday. No, I will, I will p- allocate blocks of time for the things I need to do because I know that's how I need to work. And so similarly, like for example, yeah, I studied, you know, different techniques that was like two specific years of my life. My second year of grad school, my internship at, at Orlando Shakes. Do I try to allocate time for that now? No. If piece and like write some music for it, etc. I would really focus on that thing at that time. So I think when we are learning, especially as teachers, like what do you need, you know, in order to be productive um, and to accomplish your tasks? Do you need to work on it a little bit at a time, or do you need to allocate space and time for that thing? Um, I guess that's the only way I can say that. I keep a lot of to-do lists. Um, I have written to-do lists. I have uh, the notes app on my phone. I have different alarms that I know work for me. But it takes time to figure that out. And sometimes you have to drop some balls in the way. And I have dropped balls. And I will say, um, because I'm a people pleaser, like I've, I've, I've caused harm and hurt some people in the process. And I've had to let, like, look, That was a period of time. I'm sorry I was a jerk to you. That was a period of time where I overextended myself. And I can't do that anymore because the people, I hurt people and I hurt myself if I do that. So, like, I've had to learn the hard way. I'm not, you know what I mean? That's very kind of you to say that. But I have also dropped some balls in the past or done some things half-assed because I, I did overestimate what I could handle, especially taking into account that I always tell my husband, like, oh, I have an offer to do this show, and I have time. And he goes, yeah, but you're, and he's really great about this. He's like, but you're coming off of this project, and you're going into that project. Do you, uh, He's like, I'm not, he never tells me, like, yes or no. You, I'm not asking for his permission. I'm asking for his opinion, because I love my, my husband, my partner, and, and he's really good at that. He'll say, do you really want to fill up those evenings with that project, or are you going to need time to, like, get your grading done? And catch up and he's usually right so um yeah it's a learning it's a learning curve but learning what you need and how you need it is really important and learning what your version of self-care looks like my version of self-care does include a face mask and and a glass of wine but it doesn't include a bath it doesn't include a whole day at a spa like you know what I mean it includes maybe some gardening maybe some cleaning because cleaning oddly feels really cathartic to me. Uh, it includes some time with my dogs. It includes some unstructured time watching Loki or whatever show I'm into at that moment. So yeah, learn your self-care. The other thing, um, it's not so much a question, but it's just something I want to highlight about what you said, because I will be stealing it, is you know uh, when you're talking about getting to know your students' hobbies in order 
Jeez, I think that is brilliant. Oh, I my go-to, like you, I grew up playing sports. I talked about this when Kikau interviewed me on on the last podcast, the first podcast. Um, I you know, so I go to sports analogies, but I do find that using sports ball <laughs> analogies <laughs> with my students right. t- oftentimes goes over the head. But the idea of getting to know when you said so, you started with with the the sports analogies, but then when you went on to say, or maybe they're into cooking, and I thought. Oh, yeah. Really understanding what your students do so that you can speak their language. Video games. Y'all, I played so many video games as a kid. That's why I think I'm a good driver. I knock on fake wood because my dining room table is not very real. Um, Yeah. I mean, like, I played, I had a 64 second chance. Remember, I was with a single mom who was sick. So she gave me every newest Nintendo console that came out. And so I had to self-entertain with the, the original cast recordings of Into the Woods, Phantom of the Opera, and Secret Garden, and Fester's Quest on original Nintendo. You know what I mean? Like Bart versus the aliens, right? And so when I find out my students play video games, right, like I uh, tapped out around the, the era of the OG Xbox, but I came back around. I do have an Xbox 360 in our guest room, and sometimes I play some things. Um, Call of Duty Ghosts and, like, some Lego Batman, whatever. No big deal. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, try to figure out, like, what are you into? Like, what do you do for fun? Because, I mean, gosh, I also tell my students, like, go do something other than theater as a hobby so you know, do you have life relevance? How can you play a character that does X, Y, and Z if you've never even been around people that do anything other than theater? Theater people are crazy and weird. Not crazy, but you know what I mean? Like, we're very insulated and it can get that way, especially in higher ed and college programs is to just get stuck doing just that. And it's like, go take a walk, will you? <laughs> go live life. Go live life. I, um, I just did a coaching with this girl who was interested in skiing. And while that's not my interest, I'm not somebody who throws my body. <laughs> oh beneath. my God. No, like absolutely not. But absolutely it was interesting not. because it tapped in. It made me go, Oh, this you you're you're dangerous. Like you're adventurous. Yeah, you like you're, and and so why am I seeing a safe performance? It makes no sense. Ooh, you yes. know what I just an interesting sort of insight to that. Hill. That's so funny because people if you people ask me what don't you do, Amanda, and I say snow sports. I went snowboarding once. It was the most miserable half an hour of my life. I took off the snowboard, y'all. There's a picture of my husband who got into the bottom of the bunny hill giving me a, it was like our first year of marriage. I took off the snowboard and trudged down the hill in my boots. I was like, this is not fun for me. This is not fun. I love it. Um, all right. So our next question and the last of these questions, um, and you may have actually answered this to some degree, but I, I know you'll be able to expand on this. Um, what is our responsibility as MT educators mm. to change or affect the professional industry as we know it? Question mark. To teach students how to work in the industry, to change the industry. Is it our responsibility to work within the industry? I know that's a pretty wide question, but what do you think? I used to tell students in my frustration as as a young educator and someone who works in the industry, if you want to change the game, you have to learn how to play it. I also continue to tell students, if someone closes a door, you need to build your own damn door. 
With those together, I used to teach to the industry. I used to think it was my moral obligation to teach students. And I, and I, because I was taught this way, right? Uh, the, my educators did everything they could to simulate the industry in an educational environment, which led to a lot of harm. Being told by a casting director after I sang, after he gave everybody feedback on their performances and, and adjustments, right? And I went last because I was a BA in a BFA class that they let me take. And I will never forget, he said, that was great. Your performance was great. I actually have no notes for you, but you're 10 pounds away from a leading lady and 10 pounds away from a character actress. And at the time, I was 135 pounds. And, and I wore it well. You know what I mean? And that's, that was my takeaway. So, like, someone would say, well, yeah, thank God he was being honest with you and he was, he was trying to help you and simulate the industry. But, like, can we teach students about the industry without causing harm by simulating the industry? Can't I just tell them? Guess what? There are some sizest casting people out there, so I'm going to tell you about what they're going to do but, like, as far as I'm concerned, sing what you want to sing. You're not aware if you feel great, right? So I feel it's our responsibility, absolutely, to change the industry through the people that are going into it, which is while we continue to try to change the industry as actively participating members of the industry while we're teaching. And I know that's a lot to juggle. But that goes back to one of Maddie's questions, like, why do you teach? I mean... I have identified that like I'm in a phase of my career right now where I'm getting a lot of work. I'm working a lot. I've hit a really nice stride. I have some great working relationships with people and I'm a teacher. So I find that that's a very unique gift. It might not be, I might not be in this position in 15 years. I might be like, I'm only, I'm writing books and teaching class and that's what you get. But right now I teach I'm on campus from nine to four and, and often I leave campus. And if I'm not doing a rehearsal on campus, I'm going to rehearsal at the Lyric or wherever. And I'm, and I'm working in the professional world so I can see what's going on. Yeah. It's our obligation to change it. Um, a great example of this is when I, my first year at KSU, <clears throat> um, one of my colleagues used the term colorblind. We're like doing colorblind casting. Right. And this was 2013. This was 2015. And we were then in a faculty meeting and another colleague said like, hey, can we move away from that term and use the term conscious casting? And I remember there was such pushback from a bunch of people in the room who were like, that's not a term. We use colorblind in the industry all the time. And she said, and I quote, well, why don't we be on the forefront of that change? But everybody was so afraid to the quote unquote correct term being used in the industry. And her point was, let's be the at the, the, the people who make the change. Let's be the change makers. Let's do it. But everybody was so afraid of that. Well, I'm not afraid of that anymore, right? And so I think that it's our responsibility to be honest with students about how it is out there right now, but be hopeful about what we can do about it and, and provide them with tools on how to make that change. So therefore, we as educators... You know, it's stressful, it's tired, it's exhausting how we find that balance of like, look, I know, listen, I know, you know what I mean? Pulling a kid aside and being like, I know what that casting director is like and you want to go work for their theater and I know you're going to have to sing this and I know they're not going to consider you for that, but I think you're capable of this, this, and this. So what do you want to do? 
I also, and this is something that I'm so jazzed about because it was part of my dream when I came to KSU six years ago, and now it's coming true. I just want us to um, teach young people how to write new material because I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. There's too many BFA programs that are churning out performers who just know how to perform. There's not enough jobs. There's just not. So let's, let's churn out writers. And with technology, I'm going to get on my soapbox real quick, with GarageBand and Logic and QLab and Mainstage, you don't know how to be Bernstein level composers. You don't. Set up an Apple loop and write a song. Right, you can hire some kid with a with a with a bachelor of music who did Fears of Theory and Counterpoint and crap to notate your stuff. Farm it out, pay them for what their services are. But like Lin Manuel Miranda wrote all of Hamilton mostly on demos, and Alex Lacrimore arranged it. Hire your friends to flesh out the rest. So it's our responsibility to teach people how to create your own material and start telling your stories, even if they're not perfect. You can recruit and pay people for their opinions to help judge it. You know, that's I think my answer to your question <laughs> i think that's my answer <laughs> no it's great it's great um we now will transition to uh recommendations oh yes Ooh. favorite part <laughs> no the other part's my favorite part but i like this part too <laughs> <laughs> i like it all i love teaching oh my god <laughs> yeah so uh we like to end every making a a recommended resource, a recommendation for a resource so that our listeners uh, can um, dive into a, a book, a, a, a podcast, a television show, a movie, I mean anything um, that might be useful in their their pedagogy and their exploration of musical theater with students. Um, so uh, Amanda, as our as our first guest um, oh. and as our first recommender, that's not Kikau or I. What <laughs> recommended resource do you have for our listeners? Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Can you t- <laughs> <laughs> great book? Tell us why. <laughs> uh, I would also say Tenuto, the app that helps people learn intervals for musical theater. If you want to be more practical, fine. Uh, musictheory.net and Tenuto. Um, those are great. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. It's not a, it's not a, a pure science, right? I, I just like Malcolm Gladwell's writing as well as the Freakonomics podcast because it, it's a way of thinking that is beneficial to artists. Also, the tipping point. Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point is great too because he's talking about trends, right? And he's talking about how... Um, outliers is about the whole like 10,000 hour rule. And again, like, I don't say you have to stick to that, but realize like success is often a trifecta of hard work being in the right place at the right time. So his point is he gives all these examples about how all these people had put in the work, right? Yo-Yo Ma is his example for, for, um, uh, you know, a successful cellist. He talks about the software giants like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Wozniak. And then he talks about athletes and birthdays and junk like that. So you can take some of it or leave some of it. But the point is, he's like, you got to put in your hours of work. But then it is about being in the right place at the right time. And what happens is a lot of times when we're putting in the work, especially in the musical theater world, we're, we're still comparing ourselves to others as a benchmark. When I say this to all my students, if you want to be truly success, successful, you don't have an example. Because if you follow an example, 
then you're training yourself towards a goal that's not truly uniquely you. You can have multiple examples, right? Like, and I think those examples should be outside of the industry. You know, you want your role models to be Steve Jobs, Simone Biles, Brian Stokes Mitchell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Like, great. They should be varied like that so that you could say, oh, I, I want the, the dedication and the strength of Simone Biles, but I want like the empathy and softness of this person and I want the, the nerdiness of this person and that's kind of, you know. So, so Outliers talks about that and then the tipping point talks about trends. So I think that's great when you're thinking about, and I teach this in musical theater history and literature, we examine musicals and and not just how they're successful in their writing and their execution, but why, in context of what was happening at there, had come out six years later, it might have not been that successful because everybody was kind of all like over that re- that part of the revolution and the and the the free love revolution and and Vietnam, right? Like we were in a different we were in a different mindset about our involvement with Vietnam. But when Hair came out, you know, 1967, 1968, like we were in the center point of when that piece of art was needed by the people at that time. And conversely, there are so many wonderful musicals that have come out throughout the years that just came out at the wrong time, right? Like look at a man of no importance, like that poor little show. It just came, it just like didn't not not all the not all the chips fell the right place for that show to be successful when it came out. Right. And it's not a perfect show. There are no perfect shows, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's some really great pieces of art out there, musical theater that just, mm. so if you read the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about, tr- it's all about trends. It's like the basics of economics and how we hit tipping points. And then those things are no longer popular anymore for a reason, because people just, just maxed out. Um, and so when you're writing, because we're creating, because I encourage my students to create, I'm going, you know, if you want it to be successful, pay attention to the trends. Um, also, not to get discouraged if you write something and it's not successful right away for a couple years. And then something happens in the world and you go, oh, it is time to dust this off because this is relevant. My story is now relevant. Boom. You know? Um, so yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, Tipping Point and Outliers. And then if you want to get technical, music theory, music and Tenuto, that's a great app. Those are great. That is awesome. Great recommendations. Yeah. You know, I read both Outliers and Tipping Point like six, seven years ago yeah. before I was a university professor, um, like in that, in that window between grad school and landing the job. Um, I, I remember reading both of those and they were hugely impactful to me personally. Um, but I haven't thought about them with regards to uh, teaching and, and how I can in- use them in- to inspire my students. So I want to go back and, and look at those for your recommendation um, to see, see just how- So do you have your students read these books or do you just cite examples uh, from them? Or- I have them as like recommended reading, especially when I'm often, I'm often asked to come into our senior seminar class for the branding lecture. And that's usually my recommended reading. I reference them all the time. I would also say, just real quick, his most recent book, not most recent book, but one of the most recent books called Talking to Strangers is really interesting because he talks about how misunderstandings can turn into like really, really huge deals because we haven't sat and thought from an empathetic point of view like, okay, where's this person coming from? What don't I know? What are the details? Which I think is highly impact production teams or in casts, right? And the assumptions that we make 
about people not knowing like what's the background on this. And he uses some pretty controversial examples that I won't get into, but so it's, it's kind of a tough listen or read. Like we, my husband, and I listen to his audiobooks when we're on road trips and then we like to have fruitful conversations because we're nerdy like that. Um, <laughs> we like to, we like to debate over, over ec- economical issues when we finally get to spend time together, but it is what it is. So yeah. Um, but I, I, they're not, to answer your question, they're not required reading, but they're supplemental, and I refer to them a lot in, in the hopes that maybe some students will follow through. Amanda, thank you so much for doing this with us today. You are so amazing. You're an inspiration, oh, truly. Pleasure. You're amazing. My pleasure. I, I feel so, I do. I wake up, like, even though I, I face the same um, issues of de- de- anxiety and, and forms of depression as everybody else, I... I have always been a glass half full kind of gal um, and all that kind of stuff. But I feel really, really, really grateful to be literally living my dream, right? Like I, uh, I'm overworked and underpaid because I enjoy doing what I do. Um, so I, I feel truly grateful that I get to like go to school and teach people how to sing and act every day, but then also get to Again, I've developed this throughout my time in teaching. I wasn't always this way, but now, like, it's one of my favorite things to do if a student is in distress to be like, hey, do you want to talk after class? Do you want to just sit for a second? Like, what do you need? You know, can I point you to some resources or do you just want to, what's going on, right? That's also another great book that just came out, though. Oprah and that other, that doctor. It's called What Happened to You. It's called What Happened to You is the name of the book. And it's Oprah and some other guy. Brene Brown had it on her podcast. And I love Brene Brown. I'm that girl. Um, <laughs> but I, I just think it's such a privilege to be a teacher and to like to be in this position and to interface with young people in such a pivotal point in their lives. But then also get to work with professionals and just get to like live in the gap of the two worlds. It's truly an honor. So thank you. And I feel very honored that you. It's really awesome. You bet. You're a powerful force, to say the least. Um, and I'm I'm proud to be your friend. Um, cool. So I think we're done. I think Woo-hoo. let's wrap it up. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Hay. For more information, visit joshuahaygmusic.com.